friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. I come here to bury Caesar, not to praise him. <laughs> Yo, I'll be quoting that every week. Hi guys, it's MC Lars. Welcome to, oh my gosh, episode five of the freaking MC Lars podcast. And I just want to say that the show, like I said last week, it's gotten a great reaction. We're off to a good start. And this week, we kind of go into new territory. My first guests, it was uh, my first four episodes were interviews with artists you know. And so now I'm flirting with the element of interviewing artists you may not know, but I know you're going to freaking love. So let me give you some background. So in 2011, when I was finishing uh, Lars Attacks and the Indie Rocket Science mixtape, I was out in Long Island recording Annabelle Lee, and I came up with this intro. I was like, hip-hop, nah, son, this is lit-hop. And Mike Sapone, the producer, was like, yo, that's tight, you gotta use it. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. Then I realized I didn't come up with that term lit-hop. Yes, I've been using it as a hashtag, but all respect and props goes to the almighty, talented, legendary Baba Brinkman. Now, a lot of you might know Baba Brinkman. Mega Rand and I did a song with him on his Rap Guide to Consciousness about Bayesian probability analysis, meaning like your hypothesis might change in science if you take in different data and make a different inference, right? That makes sense. So like, let's say, let's say you think that, to make things really simple, you think that water's dry and you jump into a pool and then you come out and you're soaking wet. You're like, well, maybe this, maybe water is wet, right? That's a very simple explanation of Bayesian. But at the end of the podcast, I played the song Megaran and I did with Baba Brinkman. But anyway, he has done a lot of amazing albums and off-Broadway shows like The Rap Guide to Climate Chaos, The Rap Guide to Religion, The Canterbury Tales Remix, The Rap Guide to Medicine, The Rap Guide to Evolution, The Rap Guide to Business, The Rap Guide to Wilderness. He did a uh, show with his wife called Off the Top, which was like a rap guide to neuroscience that kind of inspired his current performance, The Rap Guide to Consciousness, which basically explains how the brain works and like how the subjective concept of self comes from the neurons in our head. So if that's not ner nerdcore rap, I don't know what could be like more nerdcore rap. I mean, this dude is super nice. I've known about him for a while. Uh, my wife and I went to see his show with uh, his wife a few months ago. And then I went to see The Rap Guide to Consciousness, which is still playing. So if you're in the New York area, he's got five more showings of it. October 5th, October 6th, which is my birthday, October 7th, October 12th, and October 13th. They're all at nine o'clock. If you live with near New York, within driving distance, please go see this play. Uh, on his website, he has uh, Bill Nye giving it props. Like, it's awesome. It's like some of his best work, and I'm, I've been a fan of his for a minute. So, enough about Baba Brinkman. You will hear me and him discuss his workflow and how he comes up with ideas. And he's just a very disciplined, hardworking guy. And like, I am madly inspired by Baba Brinkman. I wanted to shout out some of the Patreon subscribers. You guys have been super, super crushing it. I want to give a shout out to Bob, Josh, Brandon, Tanner, and Railway Hacker for signing up in the past week. Like, it's so cool that y'all been supporting everything I'm doing. And you know, I just am very fortunate, you know, no label, just fans and just like passion and idea and idealism and joy. And I appreciate y'all supporting. I also want to thank some of the older uh, Patreon supporters. I want to shout out Michael, Andy, Medics DB and Toy Boat and Brenna. So shout out to y'all. Thank you for your generosity and kindness. In case you're not on Patreon, I'm doing the Chronicles of Narnia. I just dropped the uh, Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe. I started with, obviously, um, The Magician's Nephew. And then today I was recording the Prince Caspian song and The Horse and His Boy. So 
If you like C.S. Lewis, check it out. If you don't like C.S. Lewis, check it out because I'll be doing mad other topics on Patreon. Man, we just live in a very exciting time and uh, I've been feeling very good lately. I'm about to go on tour, so I've been getting back in my health regimen. I woke up early today, did some yoga. I've been eating healthy. I'm such a hippie <laughs> these days, but I don't mind. I recorded some Narnia songs. I'm working on a book about the Insane Clown Posse, so I was working on my book proposal today and just doing all this fresh stuff. Oh, and I listened to the mixes of the album that Megarin and I are about to drop very soon to the Kickstarter supporters. That's coming out. The album sounds amazing. I think it's some of the best, my best work and his best work. So if you missed the Kickstarter, don't worry. There'll be a chance to order it like after it comes out in a few months. But the Kickstarter people, it's coming soon. And let me talk about tour dates. Our tour starts next week. Oh my gosh. We are, well, it starts tomorrow. No, it starts Wednesday. So we're going to Austin Wednesday, then Dallas. I don't name them all. I'll just, I'll just name the Texas one. San Antonio, Odessa, Albuquerque, Tucson. And then we come up through California, through the Northwest, and then through the Midwest. And then I do the East Coast with I Fight Dragon. So for tour dates, go to nerdcoretour.com. Hashtag stealing fire, right? That's the hashtag. If you're a listener to the podcast and you say stealing fire to me at the merch booth, you get a free gift. So that's what's up. So Without much further ado, we're going to go to Baba Brinkman. I had a I had a comment on last week's podcast. I don't know if y'all identify with this, but a, a longtime fan and friend was like, Lars, you kind of ended abruptly. And I agree. Schaefer and I, we kind of rambled, so I took a lot out. And so we're interviewing him, and, I, and at the end I just went, okay, bye. And he went, bye. Then I played the song, and typically I come back with some thoughts, some profound thoughts, but I didn't this time. So rest assured, after we hear the Bayesian song, I'm going to say goodbye to y'all and end with some final thoughts. So stick around for that. Thank you for telling your friends. Please leave a review. And uh, I appreciate all y'all. Okay, have a good week. This is my awesome interview with the legendary rapper, educator, theater star, Baba Brinkman. Boom. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, I am here with the legendary Baba Brinkman, performance, feedback, revision. That's a motto I see a lot in your work. Baba, thank you so much for being on the show today. Hey, Lars, great to be here. I'm really happy to uh, get this together. I, I got to see your um, rap guide to consciousness. I think like I saw it in, um, in, in when did I go, August or July? Yeah, maybe? I thought it was July, yeah. And it was really cool. Thank you. And um, it keeps getting extended, right? Yeah, it was meant to be a um, like a two month run, like an eight week run, uh, March and April, and then you know mid April they were like, "You want to go through May as well?" And now um, we're just doing it. We're we're continuing until the middle of October. But I've been told that the final day is going to be October thirteenth because another show is taking over the whole theater after that. So uh, that's the official closing date now. But you know, it's going to end up being an eight month run. Is that one of your longer or longest runs? Yeah, the longest I've done before is six months up till now. Um, but this is the uh, the fifth rap guide to something uh, that that's that I've done off Broadway. So, um, so to give some background, like I'm sure a lot of the listeners, you know, I've been tweeting about you for a while, and you, I have to credit you for inventing the term lit hop. Which is something I I I use a lot too. Yeah, it was convergent. Like I I came up with Lit Hop. I, I think I put out a record under that title in two uh, two thousand six. Like okay, this really represents the the style, the sort of like literary um, 
you know, bookish style of rap that I want to rap. Uh, when I then Googled it, I found that it, other people had already used it. So then I credit it to actually it was kind of a crazy coincidence because the person who was credited with coining it when I looked online was Wade Compton, who is now a professor. But at the time he was a graduate student and he was at Simon Fraser University uh, when I was there. That's where I graduated from, too. And he actually advised me on my honors thesis. So this was what? like years like I graduated from SFU in 2000. And he was like a master's student and he was into sort of um, black culture and hip hop and literacy. And But I think for him, lit hop was like literature that's inspired by rap. And I don't know that anyone had used mm. it for rap that's inspired by literature before me, but the term was sort of out there. So, um, and then I think it was a novelist too. I can't remember his name that had used it to talk about literature inspired by rap, but I kind of, I feel it's a more appropriate term for, you know, literary rap. <laughs> well, it's interesting <laughs> because I remember like I've been researching and um, looking at a lot of your, a lot of your old work and um, you did the rap guide evolution. Yeah, yeah. And then you remixed that, right? Yeah. So I, I released it in sort of two consecutive, three consecutive years. So I, you know, I did like a, 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 what I now call the original version in 2009. And then um, it did really well for like a year and a half. And then the chance to bring it to New York and perform it off Broadway made me revisit the record and be like, you know, is this the version that I want to be sort of selling when it's in a high profile place? And I, there were some things about it that I kind of like rushed because I was going to take it to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. So I kind of, I, the first, the original record I recorded in like six weeks, like bang, bang, bang. And then I kind of took my time, like did a six month re-record, re-engineer and worked with this producer in the UK called Mr. Simmons, who just like went to town on each of the tracks. So yeah, now there's a revised version and an original version. And I noticed they're both on your Bandcamp. Yeah, which is cool because some of because there's a there's a couple of tracks on the new one that aren't on the old one, and vice versa. And I couldn't bring myself to like shut the whole thing down, so it's basically like I don't know. It's it's like variations on a theme. It's like the record mutated, you know, performance feedback revision. <laughs> um, and I was listening. You were on the podcast, uh, how hip hop can save America, right? Yeah, yeah. And you talked about how I love this, how you correct me if I'm wrong, how you saw that, like you were commissioned to do a, a rap album about evolution, but you realized that rap actually has a lot of like, it's all, it's, a, it's an evolutionary art form too. Yeah. I think that's an awesome point. Yeah. And I, I mean, I was, I was sort of well primed to do that project because I, uh, in my master's thesis, I argued that rap already has an evolutionary dynamic because, uh, you know, like, too many MCs, not enough mics because of the sort of limiting factor of there's more people that want to rap than there are people that want to listen to rappers. So it's like inherently right. competitive uh, because of how sort of fun and glamorous it is and how, how many people are sort of aspiring rappers. So that, I mean, that's like a fundamentally Darwinian situation. And then you add into that, like you got to delete stuff from your playlist because you're running out of disc space or just hours in the day or whatever, you know, whether you're competing for like the mic at a live event in a battle or just competing for like space on people's headphones. Um, you know, in my thesis, I was arguing that competitive uh, poetry through in, in other cultures, including the Canterbury Tales, reflects a similar dynamic where it's like survival of the fittest poet under the harsh conditions of an audience that can tell you to shut up if they don't like you. Um, so then when this biologist was like, could you use rap to explain Darwin? I was like, oh, hell yes, I could. In fact, Darwin explains rap. Yeah. And when you and you had like a short amount of period to do that. 
that record, right? Yeah, it was like a, I mean, it was six months from can you do it to the first performance. So the first five of those months were like cramming, reading evolutionary biology, popular science books, and Richard Dawkins, uh, Jared Diamond, David Sloan Wilson, E.O. Wilson, uh, Jeffrey Miller, and uh, Daniel Dennett, and just sort of like, okay, I got to get my head around all the, you know, especially the misconceptions, because there's a lot of people that talk about evolution, but they mean something different. They mean like evolution of consciousness, uh, you know, in a spiritual sense or something. But I was really trying to like get at the biological sort of scientific way the word is used and and avoid the, you know, creationist myths or like blank slatist myths or whatever. So um, yeah, it was, uh, I felt like it was a high stakes project, you know, evolution is like iconic, you want to do it right. Uh, and then, but th that's where the peer reviewed rap concept came up because I could send my lyrics to this biologist, Mark Palin, he could, you know, offer corrections and suggestions. And he was at University of Birmingham, right? Yeah. And so you've done a lot of work in the UK, haven't you, over the years? Yeah, the Canterbury Tales is what brought me there. You know, I like, I, because I, I did my thesis in like comparing rap and the Canterbury Tales while like writing these rap versions of Chaucer, thinking this is the way to like resurrect it for a modern audience. You know, no one can listen to, uh, you, know, you know, one that appeal with a shout of sow to the dracht of March, as Paris said to the road. Like the poetry is beautiful, but people just, they're like, huh? <laughs> like, what are you saying? You know, it needs a translation. Uh, so then I thought like rap would be the experience that recreates uh, what people would have heard from Chaucer in his time. Uh, and then when, when I kind of had this like rap version of the Canterbury Tales, I was like, what do I do with this? You know, where's the venue for this kind of thing? And a lot of people would say to me, you should take it to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Like you, it's the biggest arts festival in the world. There's all kinds of diverse things there. And uh, so that's what I did. And then it just got a ton of media. I brought it there for the first time in 2004, 2005. I was like, touring UK colleges and schools and theaters. And I did that for like three years, like literally like a four month tour every summer of the UK wow. uh, of just playing tons of venues. I remember I did like 60 venues in two and a half months one time. And it was just like Canterbury Tales rap guy, you know? So that's how I met Mark Palin. He saw that show and he was like, um, he was actually that show at the time had this whole rap in it called the rhyme renaissance. I'm not sure if you heard that, but it's like basically my whole thesis uh, in the form of a rap song talking about how language evolved, how rhyme and rhythm would have evolved in tandem with language in our species. This would have been in Africa, you know, like 100,000 and more years ago. And then oral traditions uh, would have spread along with all the different cultures uh, around the world. And then rap sort of like encapsulates all of these traditions in a modern form that can be spread via recorded uh, lyrics. And it sort of like channels the lyricism, not just of, um, you know, the African traditions, but you see why people like why there's, um, you know, Italians mixing rap with the Canto tradition. And, you know, I'm doing the Canterbury Tales and there's people, you know, people in, uh, you know, Israel and Palestine doing it. And it's like oral traditions all around the world have sort of found their new voice through rap. Uh, I, yeah, so it's, uh, that was uh, my sort of thesis concept and also the evolutionary aspect of it. I remember Mark Palin was like, you referenced Australopithecines in your lyrics in your Canterbury Tales show. We got to do an evolution show. Uh, so that's where that came from. So it's, it's also interesting because um, rhyme is, has always been a mnemonic device, right, mm -hmm. since the beginning. And it's, what I love about the Canterbury Tales is that it combines so many different literary traditions, isn't that right? Yeah. And and that it's almost like a Dr. Dre record where you feature all these different genres or guest artists and the Canterbury Tale is kind of this amalgamation of right other stories that 
some existed before. Is that right? Yeah, for sure. Uh, so the, each of the tales has a source. Some of them are more like f- loose folk tales or whatever. Others, it's a straight literary translation that Chaucer did. Um, but it's also a really interesting amalgamation of stylistic differences as well. So he has some of the poems be in um, iambic pentameter couplets, and then he has other ones be in these like heroic verse stanzas that are A, B, A, B, C, D, C, D, E, F, E, F, G, G. And um, then there's one poem that's actually done in or, uh, in like this old like um, tetrameter form that represents the sort of majority of English poetry over the past hundred years, but Chaucer self-consciously makes it the worst of all the tales. It's like really sort of cliched, and it's funny. It's like it's a, it's like the it's like the first example of deliberate satire of bad poetry in the history of the English language. So this like this this like meta awareness of Chaucer that poetry can suck. <laughs> and we should be discerning about the differences. And then he does a tale in prose, and there's this whole argument amongst the pilgrims about what's the best style. Uh. But since he represents the most sophisticated of the tales uh, in the form of the best tellers, and he does it in this ambic pentameter style that he basically imported from Italy and then adapted to English, he's sort of making, I was arguing my thesis, he's making the case that this is the new best poetry form, but he's tongue-in-cheek, like his own character does the bad poem within the story, right? but he's the author of all of them. And so he's sort of like subtly um, presenting his new invention as if it is the clear winner in the competition of all the different poetry styles from alliteration to tetrameter to pentameter. And, you know, it, like it, it was, it was um, prescient because basically all the poetry for the next several hundred years in England was imitative of Chaucer. He like established iambic pentameter couplets. Obviously, Shakespeare used them. You know, it became like if you're writing poetry, you're writing poetry that's formed like this. And uh, and it did have a huge influence. But, um, you know, you, you can think, I mean, it's almost a good example. Dr. Dre becomes a good example as well, because it's like he absorbs all the styles. And then once the chronic comes out, everyone's like, I just want to sound like that. You know what I mean? So the influence is huge, too. Right. And, and the fact that I mean, what? that we're still talking about Canterbury Tales now. Yeah. And 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 that like I love you redid the, the video. What's the one you it's the Partners Tale, right? Mm-hmm. How did you find your the animator for that? Yeah, the Partners Tale animation is actually uh, illustrations from the book. So the oh, Rap cool. Canterbury Tales was published in 2006. Uh, Talon Books is the publisher. It's a Canadian company. And uh, my brother is the illustrator. Oh, cool. Yeah, so when we were growing up, we were both into hip-hop, but I was the um, you know into the lyrics, and he was into the graffiti. So he's been doing graph. You know, he's in his <laughs> late 30s now, so he doesn't still do graph, except maybe in his notebook. But when I um, you know got the publishing deal to do the Rap Canterbury Tales, I was like, you should illustrate these stories and he drew all those characters and then we had a friend that works with after effects like yeah i mean you can tell it's still animation right those are like still images zooming in and panning across and whatever so um i've worked with a bunch of animators but um but that you know that's how that one came together so when you were doing it live did you like have projections like you do now of Not at first. Yeah. So I, the first time I, the first two times I brought, I brought that show to the Edinburgh Fringe three different times, like rewriting it each time and changing things. So the third time I, I did project simultaneous animation along with me on stage. And I added a freestyle component where at the end of the show, I'd be like, all right, so those are the tales. What other literary text should I do? And people would be like, you know, Don Quixote or, you know, <laughs> the Iliad. And then I would wow. do like a whole freestyle, like referencing all the stuff from whatever they shouted at me. Um, but yeah, that, the whole like 
simultaneous projection thing. That was the first time I did that in a show, and I re- I feel like it really works. Yeah, because you know, it just gives people like more of a spectacle, and also you can sort of represent an idea simultaneously, but put a different twist on it based on the visual. You know, so. Yeah, I try to do that at all my shows now. And I love, I love how in um, when I saw your show, you had some very, very up to date modern references with your projections, and like with the scientific stuff, it's it's it works super well because it's like you said, it's a way of transmedia, the idea of you connecting things in a way that your whole brain is engaged. Yeah. And well, what I mean, the thing that you're bringing up right there, it works great in the show that I'm doing now. It also causes shows to age out Mm. because when I performed the, like I haven't done the rap Canterbury tales now for like a year, but the last time I did it, I was already like, wow, I wrote this eight years ago and you can really tell by some of the references in the lyrics, you know, and, and uh, rap guide to consciousness. I wrote like a year and a half ago and there's a lot of Trump references in it, but let's say like he gets impeached, you know, (laughs) a lot of the stuff I say in the show, well, I'll have to like rewrite it as I go, maybe go back to the animator. Actually, I think, I think most of the visuals will still work. I mostly, I mean, a lot of that stuff is like, if you're trying to get people to understand a, a concept from literature or from science or whatever, like pop culture is the natural way to do it. You know what I mean? Like find yeah. a pop culture analogy they're familiar with that shows the social dynamic or the conflict or whatever's happening and then say, it's just like that, but with these other things. I mean, Trump becomes a great example for talking about consciousness versus uh, you know, cognitive biases or like, you know, just speaking from gut intuition without really thinking it through or reading anything about it. What I've always loved about your work too, is that you are not concerned at all with alienating people at the expense of speaking the truth. And I think that's like the mark of a respectable rapper. You know what I mean? You're not, I love that you're, you're, you, you cover so many topics, but you're not, you never seem to pander. You know what I mean? And that's yeah. Dope. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, in a way, I feel like I almost do pull punches. Sometimes I like, I, I'm glad it comes across that way. Uh-huh. But there's sometimes when I'm reading, I'm like, the truest way to say it would be this, but I'm going to lose everybody if I say that. So I'm going to like find a way to make it, you know, it's like sugarcoat to make the medicine go down kind of thing. <laughs> I'm glad it comes across that way, though. Yeah. Um, but sometimes, you know, I, I definitely feel like I do this balancing act between like laying things on the line and you got to create a show that people will come along with you on. You know what I mean? Like, um, like in rap guide to consciousness, one of the concepts that I'm really getting at in the show is that you can explain everything about human experience using like physical interactions of chemicals and, um, you know, brain activity. Hence there's no soul, you know, and that's sort of where I get to at the end of the show. I'm like the belief in a supernatural soul, you know, that thing that almost everyone believes in and is at the fundamental heart of all of our religious and spiritual traditions too bad turns out not to be the case you know science is not given any sort of comfort to that view but if i started the show with that i feel like i'd lose everybody so the whole show is about like all of this fascinating research of like perception optical illusions hallucinations psychedelic drugs uh consciousness and um you know research about consciousness and embryos and other animals and all this stuff and then i kind of come around to this like so what does this say about a soul well if you want to still believe in it you just have to find a way to make it out of neurons. And people mm-hmm. are like, oh, that's deep. But it's really, it's like a safe way of saying there's no soul. You know what I mean? Like maybe there is one, but it's not the kind of thing we used to think it was. And you have that great piece about the octopus. Yeah. That's cool. Like subjectivity is um, very relative. Yeah. And right. I mean, if people don't know, um, two thirds of the neurons of an octopus's central nervous system are in its tentacles. 
or as most of our neural density of the connections is all in our brains, they have like a much more distributed sensory system. Mm. So it's, you know, there there is, a, it's not 100% known, but what is it like to be an octopus? It's probably like, um, you know, having some independent consciousness or awareness in the fingertips, in the tentacles, in the suction cups, all of which are hypersensitive. They can taste, you know, they can feel all the details. You cut off an octopus's arm, it'll like find its way along the ground for quite a while. Yeah. They have like an independent, you know, you want to, consciousness is a tricky word, but I think like if, if, if invertebrates are conscious, then octopus tentacles are probably conscious to some degree, which is kind of crazy, right? Cause we think of it as this unified thing. And you conclude it with, you come back the next day and he's, he's gone, right? Yeah. And, and what I love about that song, man, is that he's left this memory on you and you've created a song about the octopus. So it's almost like the Shakespeare sonnet, this and this shall give you life, right? Yeah. You've, you've, you've immortalized the octopus through music and through rap. And I think that like, for me, that was a really profound part of the show and a profound part of your record because it's like, all right, if you are if you take the time to like draw a square around something or write a poem about it or write a rap about it, if it dies, it will still live on. And yeah. that's fresh to me. Yeah, it's a, it is. I mean, it's a form of, in a way, like if people used to want to believe in a soul so that they would think there would be some way for them to live on after they died, you can think of literary influence or just like your impression on other people, the memories you make and the reason that they that they care as a kind of way of living on. Also, it's, it's a way, you know, it, also the reason I wanted to do that in that track was because um, octopuses only live like two years. Which is crazy because we think of consciousness and intelligence as, as the product of this long developmental and learning process, right? Mm -hmm. But they're born out of these eggs, like hatched. They get no like guidance from parents or anything like that, right? They got to learn it all from genetics plus environment, but no nurture in any kind of sense that we would understand it. And they get to this point of like recognizing faces and solving puzzles and uh, like all, all these sort of signs of intelligence. So you, I, I love them as examples because you really have to take yourself out of the kinds of intelligence and consciousness that we're most familiar with and say there's other paths to get there mm. completely unlike ours. That's yeah. cool. And people, you know, a lot of people don't know that. You think of something smart as something like old and wise, but they're like babies. You know, two-year-olds don't know anything yeah. in our species, but these are like wise two-year-old octopuses, you know? They're like yeah. the Jedi of the ocean. That's it. Speaking of getting to places in surprising ways, I wanted to talk about your journey as a rapper, as an artist, discovering hip hop, in Canada and just your your background of your life because I know a lot of your interviews you talk a lot about your work but I wanted to get to know Baba Brinkman the man all right all right um so I mean the culture that I grew up around is tree planting all right that's what I used to do uh, I started when I was 15 but I used to go like hang out in tree planting camps these like work camps that my parents were working in when I remember being in them when I was like five or whatever so it's like a whole subculture in Canada the tree planting industry um and uh, you know I did that every summer and it's like when I go back to Vancouver, I'm still hanging out with lots of ex-tree planters and that's my, my friend circle and stuff like that. So basically I taught myself how to rap while tree planting. I'd be out there for like three months every summer. You're literally like eight hours a day on a clear cut surrounded by nothing but like trees and other planters and you gotta like repetitively work all day. And um, you know, I was listening to tons of rap and just loving the art form and I'd learn the lyrics and I'd say them and then I'd like, try variations and freestyle and like make stuff up. I would like compose uh, raps in my head, like going over line by line. I'd like come home with 20 bars written of a rap and like put it all in my notebook. And then the next day, like write 20 more bars while working. Cause you don't have to think that much about the job once you're doing it. Um, so yeah, anyway, that was, that was kind of the place that I was at when I, when I first started rapping, like 
I actually remember this epiphany when I was like planting trees and I was trying to think about like how I love hip hop, but how I don't know how I fit into it. You know what I mean? Like rural, almost backwoods, Canadian, white boy, like poetry nerd. There's nothing for me here, you know, except for just loving rap and not knowing where to go. And then I, I had this moment where I was like, rap is the natural successor of all of the poetry traditions in the English language. Rap is the new Chaucer. It's the new Shakespeare. It's the new William Blake. I kind of had this like aha moment where I was like, can I think of any fundamental difference between hip hop and poetry traditions, except for that one of them are old and one of them are new, mm. like describe rap in generic terms. And you are also describing Shakespeare. You know what I mean? Like uh, in terms of the actual art form and, you know, like social criticism and people's dramas and stylized language and live performance, all that stuff. So anyway, that, that aha moment was while I was planting trees, something about physical exercise gets your brain going, right? Like, Definitely. Yeah. Uh, it's similar. Now I jog instead and I get, I get ideas when I'm jogging, but I used to get them when I was working. But at the same time, it was like, yes, that's what I'm going to write my thesis about. And then like two seconds later, I was like, I can be a rapper. <laughs> you know, I had this moment where I was like, it's a poetry and rapper, the same thing. And then I was like, therefore, I can be a poet that uses rap as my medium and has it be about poetry and like, right. And like, like I started writing Canterbury tales, rap adaptation stuff pretty soon after that. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, it just became like this, uh, how much lit hop is basically like fundamental to how I can be a rapper. Cause it was this, like, I'm not allowed to participate in the culture, but I'm a poetry nerd and I'm a hip hop head. And wait a second, that's all the same shit. Okay. Now I can be a rapper, you know? So that, yeah, that, I, I don't know if that helped you get to know me at all, but that's, that was the thing where I gave myself permission to rap. And I like started writing rhymes right after that and sort of meeting people and being like, I'm a rapper. You want to hear some of my stuff? You're a rapper. Oh yeah. Wait till you hear this, you know? And I'd yeah. be like a posture and like, I'm the offspring of Oscar Wilde, the foster child of Jeffrey Chaucer. Now hip hop's the style of face here, you know, but I got to make clear that since my eighth year, I've been possessed by Shakespeare and William Blake spirits. And I wait to hear a voice like T.S. Eliot's and Percy Shelley is the first to tell me just how to speak out of turn and keep my verse rebellious. I read Keats and learn from a Grecian urn how to reach eternity through the gyre where Yeats burns. Uh, I could meet Traherne, but I'm a freak like Burns with his 20-some children, though I'm still a young pilgrim and I'm building a temple from the skills my tongue's yielding so I feel like John Milton. Paradise is lost for the thrill. I'm John Skelton, crossed with Wordsworth, but my zeal is unwelcome in George Herbert's church. People would be like, whoa, holy <laughs> shit, what's that? You Bars, know? that's tight, yeah, that's that, tight, that's tight. That you know, tight. That, I wrote that in like, you know, I don't know, 2001 or something like that, but you know, that was the first raps I wrote. I was like, literature, 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 hip-hop, 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 let's look at these connections. Yeah, yeah. Was that your first thing I listened to on Bandcamp was Swordplay? Swordplay, yeah. Is yeah. that from that record? It is, yeah. That's yeah. the track Dead Poets, right? That's right. Yeah. Living every day with the Dead Poet Society, writing in my, inside my head. So it inspires me to keep every book I've read close beside me inspiring me to never go quietly and yeah, i was i mean That's i was fresh, right? i was repping literature like hardcore in my first raps because yeah. i was like this is what i got i'm not repping the streets obviously you know but yeah. i can rep my experiences which is really caring about and studying the history of storytelling uh, and then i i kind of evolved from there into science i guess but the interesting thing is that each of your pieces you tell a story and you have like a thesis and like that hip-hop for me has always been about you know, the integration of technological advancements like the laptop or the or the turntables, right? Merged with ideas. Yeah. And using that to speak around like this. I like to, when I do my talks, I like to talk about this notion of circumlocution, right? You use 
the tools to speak in a new way. Yeah. And I was also listening to some some of your interviews and you talk about the griot. Griot? How do you say that word? Griot is how I've always heard it. Yeah. yeah griot. Or and that, griot, yeah. That that is a timeless thing too. Yeah, actually, you know the the way the my printer it goes one for the griot. That's uh J Live's got a track, right? He's oh, like yeah, storytelling yeah. tracks. It's one for the griot, two to get live. Um yeah, that I mean I think that like when I first re started reading about the sort of cultural history of hip hop, the the strands that every one of the historians was tracing was the traditional griot tradition of West Africa imported through the diaspora um you know the 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 slaves brought it with them when they were brought over here and then they like developed their own oral traditions which became like toasting in the dozens and it's very much like okay it's a cultural history that traces through the the africans that came here via slavery but then i was like um yes that's definitely like the core of it and then also the griots were not the only traditional oral storytellers there was oral storytellers in every other culture and every other ethnicity around the world yeah. because there's never been a break. There's never been a time when the oral traditions of Africa were completely lost by by a group that then like invented stuff from whole cloth, right? Every every generation learns the stories of the previous generation with variations. And if we know that all cultures come from Africa, originally right. our species comes from Africa, that means the storytelling traditions that were there 100,000 years ago evolved as our species evolved, uh, but in with different languages and different locations and you know the racial differences between people are like less than 60,000 years old based on you know, whatever available sunlight or whatever. Um, but you know, I, I just started to see it from a more broad perspective. Like, yeah, the people that invented hip hop were African Americans in the Bronx, but what they were doing is a universal human instinct that we all share. And that, you know, maybe that partially was a way for me to like create permission for myself to rap as a white guy. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think it is actually also a val valid point because you know, in, in Canada, it's not black and white, it's much more multicultural. So when I grew up, I was like, seeing there was a few like African Canadians in Vancouver, but it's a much, much smaller minority there. And then you'll, I was meeting lots of people that were rapping that were like First Nations rappers or Filipino rappers or like Honduran rappers or whatever. So I'm like, okay, you know, like what shade of skin are we drawing the line at here? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like everybody's got their, their cultural background and it all contains some kind of oral storytelling tradition and rap taps into all that. You have that song, I'm an African, about yeah, yeah, yeah. evolution. It's like a similar theme to what you're talking about. Yeah, right? and it, yeah. that drives the point home. But you yeah. know, that's a little tongue in cheek because like <laughs> Dead Prez has, they're kind of like the, uh, you know, the iconic, uh, you know, black nationalist, pan-Africanist statement is I'm an African and I know what's happening. But they're talking specifically about black people, right? They're saying mm. like, black people, it doesn't matter if they live in the Caribbean or in the Bronx or in the UK, we're all African. You know, and it's a it's an expression of solidarity. Um, you know, black nationalism is by its definition not meant to include white boys. <laughs> but I was sort of making the tongue in cheek point that if you want to take an evolutionary view, then everyone can say I'm an African. And you know, part of the fun of that song, I still love doing it because I'll you know, like no matter how white the crowd, I'll be like, it's cool. This is science. I want you to say it and really feel it. I'm an African and I know what's happening. And people are super shy at first. They're like, oh, is this okay or not? I don't know. I feel weird. But then once, you know, once they get into it, then you'll see them like throwing their hands up and like, it's, you know, 
like spits flying and they're getting red in the face of like, yes, I've wanted to say this my whole life. Yeah, it's you, great. You, I noticed that having seen two of your shows, it's a different crowd that then, then goes to see like the, the typical hip hop concert. Yeah. But it's a diverse crowd and it's also a crowd of different, all ages, yeah. kids to like older people. For sure. Is that intentional or do you feel like people just find out about you because it's so universal? I, I do think people will come to a theater show that wouldn't go to a music venue to see a hip hop show. I think yeah. it's definitely like the older, whiter crowds, maybe like afraid of rap or never really like understood what the appeal was and never went and sought out a concert. I do get, I get a lot of people coming to me after my show and being like, well, I never really understood hip hop, but if that's hip hop, maybe I like it after all, you know? So like, I, I see myself as kind of like a ambassador in that sense to people that are, you know, it's, it's like, in a way it's like, I'm still a teenager trying to tell my parents why rap is cool. Sure. And my parents are like, I don't understand the appeal of this music. And I'm like, no, no, you gotta listen to the poetry, you know? So like, I'm like 39, still trying to convince baby boomers why rap is really impressive as an art form. Um, and then, you know, off-Broadway theater will attract a, a wide range. There's like like youth discount ticket programs that bring a lot of teenagers in. And, um, you know, the show is full of, I mean, it is a kind of like a love letter to hip hop. So it's cool to talk to people after the show who are like younger and listen to the music. And they're like clearly the only ones who got all the in-jokes when I was referencing different rappers in the show. Yeah, yeah. As the older crowds were like, oh, it sounds like there was some kind of joke in there, but I guess I missed it. Yeah. It's a sim. It's like I, I haven't seen Hamilton, but there's that element of the older people who love the history versus the people who get all of his references. Yeah, for sure. And I think Hamilton helped for people to like take a chance on a rap theater show as well. You know, it, like I've I've been I, I produced and performed in my first rap theater show in like 2003, and uh, and in 2005, I uh, I remember running into Lin Manuel Miranda at the Edinburgh Fringe. He was doing Freestyle Love Supreme. Like he's out there with his boys handing out flyers, yeah. and I've got my Rap Canterbury Tales flyers. We're like one of we're like two of the three hip hop theater shows at the Fringe in 2005, and um, you know, like it, for me, it's analogous to when people first uh, when Eminem first came out. Before Eminem came out, I was rapping. I started rapping in like 98 and then first heard of Eminem in 99. So I remember for that first year, I'd say I'm a white rapper. And they'd be like, you're white and you're a rapper? That doesn't really compute. You know, <laughs> does that mean you're like Vanilla Ice? And I'd be like, no, not like Vanilla Ice. <laughs> and then as soon as Eminem came out, you'd be like, I'm a white rapper. And they'd be like, oh, like Eminem. You right, know? So right. now I'm like, I do hip hop theater. They're like, oh, like Hamilton. I'm like, yeah, just making a lot less money. <laughs> <laughs> but in a way, it, it makes it, it's an, it's an entry point for people. Like, do you think you've had an upswing in ticket sales from that? No, no, no. I, I, <laughs> I, I was, I feel like I've, I'm doing just as well now as I was before Hamilton, which is like, you know, get making it, making it work like sustainable, but definitely not, uh, not going viral as they say. Uh, but it's, it's more like, um, you know, the cognitive dissonance has been reduced. I feel mm -hmm. like I've, I probably got a few people in uh, that that checked it out because they, they loved Hamilton and wanted to see something else hip hop. Yeah. But it hasn't been like, it hasn't really changed the game for me. Bet. Except in, you know, it's the elevator pitch is easier. Sure. You know, I can sure. say it's like, it's like Hamilton, but it's about science and people write it. That's all I, that's all I got to say. Right. So it does really help to have something like that where it just kind of gets you over the bewilderment barrier and then you can talk about the show. I know a lot of some of the people who listen to this podcast are creators themselves, are, are creative people. And I, I wanted to talk, if you don't mind, for a few minutes about your process. Because I remember when I first ran into you a few years ago, you were researching for the Rap Guide to Consciousness. And you were talking about how you had a deadline and you were 
you know, we had a few minutes to talk and it was so interesting to me seeing you create it in like you're writing a term paper. Yeah. Like from start to finish, like what is your process usually? It's a great, it's a great example because it is totally analogous to the term paper process that I had. It was like read every single secondary source on the subject until like 48 hours before the deadline and then lock myself on my computer and like bang out an essay and then rush it in like an hour before I'm supposed <laughs> to hand it in with like no sleep and shit. That was definitely, that's how I, that's the kind of student I was. Yeah. Um, but you know, I, I always had this rationale when people were like, why are you leaving this so late? I'm like, because I might miss something that's fundamental to the organization of the essay if I don't read everything I need to read. So mm -hmm. the sooner I start writing, the more chance there is that I'll start reading something after I've started writing uh, that that makes all the things I had written already moot. And it's kind of the same when I'm creating a show now. Like I, I don't actually put pen to paper for shows unless I know where my premiere performance is going to be. You know, so I'll usually like register a show for a fringe festival or, you know, a couple of times I even had an off-Broadway premiere where the theater was like, get the show ready for this date. And I've got my like five months to research and write. But I, I kind of know, I, I usually even know the space I'm writing for. Wow. You know, like I, I usually know that what the, you know, what the stage looks like and what the place feels like. And it's in mind. I'm like, I know I'm going to stand on this stage. And sometimes, you know, when I put like with rap, with rap guide to consciousness, I don't think I started putting pen to paper until April the 4th. That's when I wrote the Dylan song, basically April mm. the 4th of last year. And my premiere performance was on like May the 9th of an hour long show. You know, so that was, but it's the same thing because I was oh reading God. every book on neuroscience, uh -huh. like trying to get all the ideas straight. I'm taking notes, but I didn't write any lyrics. You know, I was like, these are the things I want to talk about in the show, key ideas. I'm like making folders and, and I've got this whole like, you know, document full of quotes, but I'm not really like clear about what the idea sequence of A to B to C and also the personal, you know, like how do you make it relatable? What stories from my life really fit with things that I want to talk about and, you know, I didn't know I was going to do a song about communicating with an octopus on psychedelics at the aquarium while trying to get your head around the evolutionary theories of consciousness. And, you know, that like some of those ideas, it's like I had to read three different papers about like the neuroscience of psychedelics, about the octopus nervous system and about the integrated information theory of consciousness. And then there's a moment where I'm like, those are all going to fit. I can make those all fit, you know, and that's a track. Like your your tree planting moment, that, yeah. Like having this epiphany, right? Yeah, it's gotta like it's gotta percolate, and then and it's it's like at a certain point because I've been doing this for like fifteen years, I start really trusting that it's gonna come because mm. it always has come, mm. and Jeopardy is what makes it come. You know, the the question is, could I write a show without an urgent deadline? <laughs> I may be addicted to the like anxiety and adrenaline of of fearing that I'm going to screw up my first show if I don't start writing. And unless I feel that like emotional crisis feeling, then I don't have anything important to say. I don't know. You know, it'd be an interesting experiment. And, you know, yeah. I could try it tonight. I could sit down and put pen to paper and be like, I'm going to write a dope song and I don't know when I'll perform it. And, and I've got as much time as I need to work on it. But to be honest, I've tried that lots and I just like go watch TV or something. <laughs> well, and knowing that you have a physical audience that's right. Like that's because you know, if it's about the consciousness, you know, you'll have an audience that's aware of your references and gets it, right? Yeah, yeah, that's it. And and I also, you know, the UK connection is an important one for me too, because all of my shows I've premiered at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. And that takes me back. Like I, I graduated from my, uh, from my master's degree in 2003, took my show to the Fringe in, uh, in Edinburgh in 2004. That was Rap Canterbury Tales. 
literally like every single show I've done since then, I've premiered at the Edinburgh Fringe. Uh, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't mean that I always have to do that, but it's become really like part of my creative process to register a show with the Fringe without having written it yet. And then I've got the like February until August uh, mm. window to to create the show and and have not the final version, but like a version that's good enough to do well at the fringe, uh, you know, an hour long version that's going to have some comedy and going to be thought provoking and going to sort of hold its own against the the, the stand up comics that are the uh, the big sellers there and stuff. You know, you're hustling tickets on the street. And yeah, I've. You know, I, th I think I'm going to do it again next year, actually, because I, I, it's time to create a new show. Rap Guide to Consciousness is closing and, you know, it's like, what's next? So, yeah, th I think that show is going to be called Darwinism with, cool. the, with a Z. Cool. <laughs> Darwinism with a Z. Yeah, Darwinism, you know, the isms and schisms. Uh, and, and yeah, it's, I mean, it's 10 years ago that I wrote the Rap Guide to Evolution. But like I said, there's stuff about that show that really feels like you know, this stuff in it that's like, whoa, like, yes, we can, Obama. I was all excited, right? Like, yeah. oh, my God, America's got the coolest president ever. Uh, you know, the world's going to be great. Let's talk about evolution in the context of evolving towards the greater good and stuff. And, you know, now when I do it, some of that stuff comes across as, like, just a little Pollyanna-ish, you know? So mm. I think there, there may be, like, a more... Uh, you know, address the darkness kind of stuff that's coming in this next one. And also just like there's new research that like some some of the sort of picture of human behavior seems to be uh, to be developing through the research. I think cultural evolution's got a lot more to say than I used to give it credit for. Like, you know, culture matters a lot for human behavior, but we can't think of culture as some kind of like magical process by which things just burst into existence through creativity and eureka moments. It's not that actually, it's like a grinding evolutionary process where cultural variants are tested against their like utility or catchiness in the human brain. And really like natural selection explains that. So, the, you know, mm. that's why I love using evolution as a as a, a way of understanding rap, because it's like a very competitive and transparent example of what all culture can find its origins in. You know what I'm saying? Like rappers are like, my lyrics killed your lyrics, and that's why you're listening to my lyrics. And right. really, like Apple killed the other computer competitors you know what i mean like the iphone is killing whatever the hp's latest one or whatever you know that's actually yeah, the yeah. same process except for the iphone you open and it doesn't say we killed hp on the screen <laughs> right away you know so in a way i think rap is just like a really sort of explicit transparent version of how all culture evolves and it's not sort of floating free of biology like the instincts of you know, wanting to acquire status and recognition and be attractive to the people that you're trying to hook up with and whatever it is, you know, I think a lot of the sort of driving motives of why you would want to be a good rapper come down to biology. Sure. But what rap survives uh, is very much a cultural evolution process. And it's the same with technology, you know, political systems, norms, all, all, a lot of that stuff is what I want to explore in the next show. Would you, so you've did, you also did Dante and Beowulf, right? Not Dante. Oh, that may be on the deck, but yeah, uh, um, yeah Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh, Gilgamesh yeah. and Beowulf. Yeah. Would you do more lit hop stuff or? Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I would. I've kind, I'm kind of like, um, you know, my, my default is to do a science show. Yeah. And uh, but you know, I, I kind of feel the pull of literature sometimes as well. So um, you know, Dante would be on the list 
for sure. Uh, Don Quixote would be on the list. Uh, I, and, and also the Iliad and the Odyssey are pretty interesting uh, examples. It's funny, I, I talked to, a, there's a rapper called Sir Nate here in uh, in New York, and he does sort of like some literature philosophy raps as well. He was like, oh, I was thinking of doing something with the Odyssey. I was like, all right, let's see who does it first. <laughs> so yeah. I think Lit Hop's catching on. Man. I think that people are, it's an entry point to, to what, maybe isn't being taught as much in the schools as much. You know what I mean? Like showing that it's valuable and that it's timeless and important. But that's why I love your work because it's, you know, as someone who's not necessarily a scientist, I've learned a lot about science from you and from my wife who's a science teacher and rapper. And it's something that whenever I leave your your plays, I want to go home and write, you know? Yeah. And it's just, it's awesome that you can take all these topics and it's really cool. I, I didn't think this was what I was going to do, you know? Like, I didn't see myself as a science communication rapper. I was thinking in terms of, like, literature and storytelling uh, when I first started out. But, you know, it's a short it's a short leap to science because science is kind of, I, I would now say, like, the greatest story ever told. It's mm -hmm. like the story of humans discovering what the world is really like and how they can, you know, A, understand things, but B, like, solve problems. You know, medicine, like, save lives and, you know, design design a society and a world in a future that like has less suffering and more comprehension and more connection. And, you know, so I think it's really like, I, I'm a very, uh, I've, I've become a passionate science advocate through this stuff. And it, ironically, hmm. it's kind of given me more swagger too. If you think about the evolution yeah. from a humanities to a science person, I used to be like, this is a literary work and I'm giving you my interpretation of it. Uh -huh. But my interpretation isn't necessarily any better than yours. And, you know, <laughs> postmodernism teaches us that all interpretations are equally valid at some level. With science, I'm like, yo, you know, this, I'm representing facts, y'all. You want to take it out with me? Take it out with me and the army of researchers that I represent. And, you know, that's where the whole like peer-reviewed rap thing has been really fruitful for me yeah. because I don't write a show full of my opinions. I write a show that attempts to communicate the scientific consensus about a topic while clearly taking poetic license and editorializing in terms of how it's delivered. But I'm not saying anything that's a claim about reality in the show that isn't backed up by the research. And it's really like this, like I've gotten amazing support from the scientific community. Like scientists book me for their conferences, share my stuff, like I've become friends with a lot of the researchers that I reached out to, like, I loved your book. Mm -hmm. I want to write a rap about it. And I've like ended up staying friends with them and like we hang out and stuff. So yeah, it's great. There's no one like you in hip hop or <laughs> science. And that's why it's, it's very fresh to get to talk to you and follow you. And uh, is there anything you, we, we can plug here? Uh, the latest record is Rap Guide to Consciousness. So I would say like get people to bump that one and, um, you know, just check out the catalog. Like there, there's like eight rap guides and they're all on Spotify and Apple Music and the whole nine. So, uh, you know, if you if you ever feeling like you want to have your brain massaged a little bit, just say like, Alexa, play Baba Brinkman and Alexa will bust out this whole playlist. It's actually going to be a mix of like Beowulf and Gilgamesh might come up right next to Darwin and a song about climate change. And, uh, you know, I just, I just, I'm excited to keep carrying it on. And you're on Patreon, right? Yes. Yeah. Pa and Patreon, um, tends to be more for like, uh, like video releases. I try to, I try to channel that into making music videos, uh, but also producing, producing music as well. And then there's like a subscription service through Bandcamp where you get all the music automatically if you subscribe. So support, support through those, uh, platforms really helps artists a lot, especially artists like you and me that are doing it DIY grassroots, not waiting for the label to swoop in and save us from above. 
And finally, you're so the Rap Guide to Consciousness is playing at it's the Soho Playhouse. Yeah, Soho Playhouse. And I, I should give a shout out to the Soho Playhouse because uh, the, you know they've produced all of my New York plays so far. Wow. So this is the sixth one since 2011 that's had somewhere between a one and six month uh, production run at the Playhouse. And the artistic director there, Darren Lee, Co- Darren Lee Cole, he he's directed most of the shows. He directed Consciousness, and uh, you know Darren just really gets it. He, he you know he's supported my work a lot, and his ideas become formative for like this this is going to work on stage, and this is not in terms of like how to connect with an audience and. And, and make the ideas come across. So yeah, um, it's a great it's a great theater. Actually, uh, if anybody's seen Nanette with uh, Hannah Gadsby, the new uh, comedy special on Netflix that's getting massive buzz, it's brilliant. And that was also at the Soho Playhouse earlier this year. Cool. I got to hear the last twenty minutes of Nanette like fifteen times because my <laughs> my slot was right after Hannah. So uh, you know it's interesting. I watched the Netflix version. And I was like, oh okay. So there were like six other different ways she could get to that ending through her improv. Uh, versions of the script is great you know i was uh, super impressed with that piece of work that's cool yeah um well hopefully we'll see you on netflix one day yeah i love time. that if anyone's listening from netflix holler i'll do a rap guide to anything <laughs> uh baba brinkman thank you so much i know you got to run because you have a show tonight i do i do i need to hit the road um but if uh, yeah that 9 p.m tonight i'll be on that stage so people yeah. go check it out and this is a song we're going to end with the bayesian song from that record that Megaran and I were on. Yeah, and uh, shouts out to you and Megaran as well, because uh, I I, produ- I just recorded this with just my chorus and verse, and then I reached out to Lars and Megaran, like, I'd love to get you guys on this track. It's about Bayesian statistical analysis, and I, I wasn't sure what kind of reaction I'd get, and you guys just nailed it with those verses, and, you know, it was inspirational for me, because, I, you know, when you're researching and writing science raps, you're in this little bubble, like, will anyone get this? I don't know. And no one had really heard the song yet at that point either, yeah. right? It was just like this concept and you both came back like this is dope i've got some great concepts to go with this and anyway so yeah it's not it's not just me it's a movement it's a movement check check out baba brinkman's music and uh, thank you so much man hey my pleasure this has been great all right bye everyone we don't just passively perceive the world we actively generate it so perception figuring out what's there has to be a process of informed guesswork in which the brain combines these sensory signals with its prior expectations or beliefs about the way the world is. The world we experience comes as much, if not more, from the inside out as from the outside in. Let me show you how to be a good breezy and change your predictions after taking information in. And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing, let's adjust those expectations. Wes Abazian is someone who cares about evidence and doesn't jump to assumptions based on intuitions and prejudice. Abazian makes predictions on the best available info and adjusts the probability because every belief is provisional. And when I kick a flow, mostly I'm watching eyes widen, maybe because my likeness lowers expectations of tight rhyming. How would I know unless I'm rhyming in front of a bunch of blind men dropping placebo controlled science like I'm Richard Feynman? Is it because of my looks or the fact that I talk like I'm mad for books? Either way, in the eco system of rap i'm the platypus so my patron saint on stage is reverend bays just watch me update the predictions in everyone's brains teaching a crowd about probabilistical statistical science for instance if the president's approving degenerate liar remember your priors and be skeptical whenever he's testifying is it always inaccurate no but you discount outliers especially when he's testifying about non-citizens muslims african-americans and other victims of dog whistling bigoted unconscious bias 
Unreliable information The antidote is to learn how to think like a Bayesian So let me show you how to be a good Bayesian Change your predictions after taking information in And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing Let's adjust those expectations Let me show you how to be a good Bayesian Change calculations after taking fresh data in Those predictions that your brain is making Let's get them on a solid foundation It was 2009 and I was opening for Nas Predicted they would love us, hypothesis was wrong Crowd presented evidence, booing while I rhymed They'd rather hear the message or New York state of mind was it my flow? No, I hardly lacked ability Rapping with agility Check the probability Not likely to give up Under fierce choleric scrutiny Refused to stop the show Though their peer review was news to me Confusing me Like the anti-science right I was dripping like the ice caps Yes, it was not my night But I kept it Bayesian Cause the late I'm in is solid Anticipate results With my a priori knowledge So never let a hater Shower you with data That tells you you should quit Drop the mic and be like later Two more songs Then like OJ I was out Saw Nas backstage and think Then grabbed my bag And then I bounced Let me show you how to be a good Bayesian Change your predictions After taking information And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing Let's adjust those expectations Let me show you how to be a good Bayesian Change calculations after taking fresh data in Those predictions that your brain is making Let's get them on a solid foundation Felt like I was still a baby when I first learned to be a Bayesian I would find myself within a constant state of frustration before the day begins On Facebook, my sample consisted of people I called my friends Who self-aggrandized and post constantly aligned with the latest trends Using inconclusive evidence to assess the probability That people would never examine what is true and accept the lie willingly From my observation came a question Are people really so naive? Or is there a correlation between make-believe and what is on the screen? Cause it seems that we have forgotten this The truth and politics are opposites Humans are intelligent And that's the layup of a hypothesis So I would conduct an experiment By laying down a simple rap And wondering what every one of the people who heard this line call it fact Even if it were verifiable, supportable, sustainable Considering the source, would anyone ask how the info is attainable? So I analyzed my data The context in which I framed it in 50% would agree with me Taking the info I gave to them Maybe if I was the platinum pop star rocking football stadiums And not a little known rap artist whose status took me subterranean I can conclude they would place a higher value on the power of my cranium But minds are forever changing them And that, my friends, is Bayesian So let me show you how to be a good Bayesian Change your predictions after taking information And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing Let's adjust those expectations Let me show you how to be a good Bayesian Change calculations after taking fresh data in Those predictions that your brain is making Let's get them on a solid foundation a solid foundation, Baba Brinkman, with the wisdom, the passion, the focus, like, it's just fresh. Like, it's so cool to know that people like him exist in rap and theater and the intersection of academic with entertainment, with passion. It's just, it, you know, that's that's what life is all about to me. So thank you all for listening. Next week, we got Brendan from Weedis, and we talk a lot about what it was like being on a major label at a time when people actually bought CDs what it was like to have a hit single and like how he kind of rescued an indie career from the ashes of that. And yeah, Brendan Brown is a very interesting guy. I've collaborated with that dude a lot. He helped me make my second album, 
this gigantic robot kills. Incredibly generous guy, but like a, an interesting soul. So if you're interested in the music industry, songwriting, whatever, creation, tour stories, check out that. That will be on next Monday. Come see us on the nerdcoretour.com tour. And thank you all for listening. And special thanks to Baba Brinkman for being on the podcast. Please check out his show if you can. Peace.